I'm Stefan Sittig, and welcome to American Theatre Artists Online, where we talk with leading contemporary figures in American theatre. If you've been enjoying the American Theatre Artists Online podcast, I urge you to consider donating to help the artists who produce the theatre that we all love so much. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, Many performers, designers, directors, choreographers, stage crew, and theater administration staff are either without a job or in peril of losing their jobs. The Actors Fund provides assistance to artists to cover basic living expenses, such as food, essential medications, utilities, and more. If you love and enjoy theater, please consider donating to the Actors Fund today. Just go to actorsfund.org and press donate. Jenny McConnell Frederick is a Washington, D.C.-based director, producer, and strong believer in impossible theater. She's the co-artistic director of Rorschach Theater, which she founded in the summer of 1999 with Randy Baker. She has directed dozens of productions at Rorschach, including the Helen Hayes-nominated Voices Underwater and God of Vengeance, and at various other theaters in the D.C. area. She has served as a mentor director for the Kennedy Center's American College Theater Festival and as artistic director of DC's Source Festival for over a decade, overseeing the selection, development, and production of more than 200 works for the stage. Currently, she is part of an eight-member team building Rorschach's groundbreaking Distance Frequencies, an immersive experience that sends participants to seven locations around Washington, D.C. to explore chapters in an unfolding story about the city's history, real and imagined. The project will culminate in a live show in July 2021. Hi, Jenny. Hi. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for uh, agreeing to be on American Theatre Artists Online, our podcast. We like to talk to what we call leading contemporary figures in American theatre, and I thought of you. Fantastic. Thank you. (laughs) And the reason I thought of you is that you've really been, in my view, a staple of Washington, D.C. area theatre as a director, producer, and What you like to say, and I think is wonderful, a strong believer in impossible theater. You're the co-artistic director of, (laughs) right? It's awesome. You're the co-artistic director of Rorschach Theater in D.C., which you founded in the summer of 1999 with Randy Baker. So before we dive into all of the awesome stuff that you do, I like to ask all my guests, how are you doing? You know, we've just been through a year and a half almost of, of sort of theater on pause and you're in theater, so you must have felt a, a lot of repercussions. So how are you holding up during this whole break, this quarantine time that we've been on? Yeah, um, that's a great question. It uh, has been a wild year, of course. Uh, I think that right now, in this moment, I am feeling like spring, right? I'm feeling like there is a um, kind of fresh new energy to the world where things are opening up and things are changing, and I'm seeing people going back to work, and that's really, really validating and really exciting. Um, for myself uh, and for Rorschach, it was a for Rorschach, it was kind of an incredible year. Um, we managed to pivot uh, early on. Everyone says pivot all the time, keeping quiet, but um, pivot. we managed to. <laughs> Right, to pivot last summer um, to create a new kind of year-long project that we're working on. Um, And people have been very responsive to it. So in that sense, I feel very lucky that we as a company could continue producing in in a different way during the course of this year. Um, Personally, it's been very chaotic to be um, have my son home with me the whole year. I have a wonderful nine-year-old who's in third grade. And um, my husband, who is also wonderful, was working in person for most of this year. So... Um, it was a lot of time together trying to manage the priorities of third grade and the need to get outside and go to the playground while I was still, you know, working and trying to keep this company moving forward and keep all the things that Rorschach does moving forward. So it was, it was definitely chaotic and a lot of kind of mental juggling, but all in all, um, you know, I have, uh, a lot of good things and a lot of kind of privilege in, in what I live with. So, uh, 
I'm happy to be here right now. I know. Well, I'm glad that you're you're able to 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 continue to do what you love and also to help um, DC area theaters, you know, continue to produce. I mean, that in and of itself is a huge endeavor. Um, you've been artistic director with Randy Baker of Rorschach Theater in DC for over 20 years, Jenny. Can you believe it? Yeah, no. <laughs> and so can you share with us a bit of what the mission of Rorschach is and the origins? What was the idea, the germination of this theater company when you were, you know, first thinking about uh, creating a company? How did this all get started? Yeah. Um, well, you know, we were a bunch of kids in our early 20s um, who were eager to make theater and found ourselves uh, all working for other theater companies in D.C. Randy was uh, at Theater J. I was at Woolly Mammoth. But none of us were doing kind of the kind of peak production roles we wanted to be doing, you know. Um, so we were hungry and we were ready. And we really wanted to make the kind of theater that would um, immerse the audience in the experience. We wanted them to be able to feel the work around them, you know. And I think we were seeing a lot of... Um, more traditional work on proscenium stages, and we just felt like there was something else that we could bring to the world. So we um, invented Rorschach, and we uh, decided to create work that um, surrounded the audience. So our first production was um, Eugene O'Neill's The Harry Ape, which is maybe not a production we would have chosen today, but the way we produced it is very much Rorschach, I think. Um, we were at the... Um, uh, on the stage at the D.C. Jewish Community Center on 16th Street. So the audience and the actors were on stage, and we built this steamship, essentially, and, um, you know, the actors were appropriately filthy and sweaty and inches from the audience, and um, just even our first reviews really gave this sense of, like, what it felt like to be inside the work. Um, and we tried to take that visceral quality and that up-closeness and apply it to everything that we have done since then. Um, now our mission, uh, and then, was about creating um, uncommon theatrical experiences uh, so that people can discover new elements of their own humanity. So some of the key words in our mission. It's really about um, creating something unexpected in the theater space, going in and finding a surprise in the world. Uh, we never do kitchen sink dramas. We do a lot of magic realism. We do plays that um, are like life, but just outside of life, that are um, enhanced and magical, but also very visceral and very emotionally connected. Wow. I mean, you know, I've always, I've been sort of following the trajectory of Rorschach Theater myself as a DC resident and avid theater goer. I've often... Um, yeah. You know, seen productions and really enjoyed what you guys do is totally different. I'll just throw one experience I had out there, which was something I'll never forget, was a production of The Master and Margarita, where it was in an old church. <laughs> yeah. And I should let you tell it, but it was an old church. And as an audience member, my experience was as if I was opening a Christmas Advent calendar and every little opening had like this nice cool surprise scene in it was that intentional because that's the that's the what i took away from it yeah i mean so that was um in our early years particularly we looked for unusual spaces part by necessity and part by desire and um we found ourselves in this uh it was 100 years old then so it's 115 year old mm. 15 years old now um church in columbia heights and we were in the church's original sanctuary that was our performance space for quite a few years and we really tried to work with the architecture of the space we didn't try to convert something into a theater we just tried to work with what was already there um and so yeah for master and margarita which i directed we built this kind of long linear world and yeah there was kind of trap doors and things that opened and unfolded and again we sort of surrounded the audience with the world of this the, the play like there was um this sort of kind of proscenium world right in front of you but then to the left there was um uh another stage space and then to the right there was what had been the choir loft of the i mean I guess on the left was what was kind of the pulpit of the original church and then on the right was what was the choir loft and so we had action happening in all of those spaces and we had like an apartment built on the kind of the second story where the choir loft was um, I think we actually depicted the crucifixion up in the choir loft as well. Yes, it was beautiful. Um, so, I yeah, mean... we really just wanted... And the audience was really only... There was a lot of people in there, but it was a long, long narrow space. The audience was only two rows deep, I think. And it meant that you were always right in the action, and it was happening near you and around you and, um, and to you. Yeah, it was a really... That was one of those magical shows where we had... Um, quite a lot of chaos in the production process as small theater often does and 
but it was this magic moment where you we opened the doors to this production and just hundreds of people came it was probably our biggest audience at the time we had never had so many people turn up over the course of a run and we were suddenly selling out you know and it hadn't happened to us yet and it was you know i think our production was amazing but also it's a book that was well known and a lot of people have a really warm spot for this play and this and this book um and people just came out of the woodwork in fact there's a woman now who's participating in this year's project who came to us through that play and still wow. talks about how that was such a transformative experience for her so um there was a lot of yeah there was a lot of chaos and to see that transform into something really beautiful was was just why we do this <laughs> uh, that's great i'm glad i brought it up then but you know there was something about that production too that struck me as i left the theater that night and went home i was thinking i don't remember in my mind ever seeing a small theater with a you know uh, not a lot of budget Right. Because at the time, really, and probably even still now, you all don't have, you know, you don't have the budget of an arena stage in Washington, D.C. or a Kennedy Center or some of the bigger, more um, lucky theaters that have, you know, really big endowments. You guys don't have that. And I kept thinking to myself, how did they create such a beautiful design and a beautiful uh, experience of a magical play, really, with such a shoestring budget? I think that's what stuck in my mind as something unique for the DC area. Yeah, I mean, we've always, uh, I think, sought um, visionary artists. We've tried when we can to be a culture of yes, to say yes to big ideas. And, you know, you mentioned earlier my love of impossible theater and to look at a company our size and to look at a script like that, which is full of all of these um, surreal moments of a witch that flies across the stage. As I said, the crucifixion happens, the devil throws a ball. Like there's there's a lot of wild things that happen in this play. Um, And there's, it was a cast of, I don't know, a million or something. There was many cast members. It was a large cast. And um, we look at that and we try to, yeah, we try to say yes, you know, Hmm. um, and find ways to make that happen. I think it's also a credit to, this town and this community that we have always found very supportive in terms of um, larger companies being willing to share, being willing to loan costumes, being willing to, um, well, I mean, we've never used anything outright, but I mean, we transform it. But the the sense of generosity and the sense of give and take um, between companies of all sizes um, has always been something that uh, I very much appreciated about Washington. That's great. No, I agree. And you know, in a way, the trajectory of Rorschach over the last 20 years in a way sort of mimics or, 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 or goes uh, parallels sort of the DC theater community trajectory and growth. Because when you look, I, I was thinking, you know, like when I first came to Washington, back to Washington to do theater as a professional in the late 90s is when you guys got started. Um, there were big theater houses, you know, and this is very local to DC. So those listening in that aren't um, DC folk, sorry, but I mean, it's interesting, I think, even for if you're not a DC person, um, that you know, we had these big houses like Arena, Shakespeare, etc., that were, you know, had huge budgets and dominate. And then you had the smaller theaters at the time they were considered sort of edgy, like Woolly Mammoth and Studio Theater. But then what has happened over the last 20 years is that those theaters have sort of become mainstream, like Studio and Woolly, as the, the theater uh, community has grown. And then a theater like Rorschach, to me, came in and took that spot, what we used to think was sort of studio, the edgy um, studio may not like me saying this, but I sort of feel like Rorschach took that spot (laughs) of taking the real risks with the material and the way they presented it. So talk to me a bit more about this uncommon theatrical experience that you talk about. You've directed dozens of productions now for Rorschach and several others for other theaters in the DC area. You've branched out a bit too. So talk to us about maybe one or two productions that really stand out in your mind as ones that really satisfy this idea of the uncommon theatrical experience. You just talked about one, the Master Margarita, but even if they weren't critically acclaimed, you know, for ones that were critically acclaimed, you know, uh, who knows, and ask maybe why they were or popular. Um, So anyway, tell us maybe one or two that stick in your mind over the past, like your greatest hits of the last 20 years, if you had to choose some. Yeah. Wow, that's it's like hard such do. a hard sum up question, right? But yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, um, Master and Margarita would definitely be high on that list. Um, I think uh, another one that was really very special to me and to our company was Neverwhere, uh, the Neil Gaiman book that we um, 
stage. I directed that as well. I directed it twice. Um, and we did that at the Atlas in one of their big black box spaces. Um, but we transformed this space so beautifully with the design and the light. And um, literally the action of the play happened surrounding the audience. Like it was a sort of inverted arena, right? So the audience was sitting in the middle mm. and the, the action of the play happened in the 360 degrees around. And um, for anybody who doesn't know, the story takes place um, in kind of the underground of London, not specifically the train system, but the, the, um, the sewers and the gutters of, of London, but it's full of magic and full of these mystical characters, and there's a beast, and there's um, uh, an evil angel, and all, all kinds of uh, wonderful things. And we were able to manifest this world and really put the audience down inside it. And there was a London below, which is where most of it takes place, and the London above, up on the street level, um, and I think people just hadn't really experienced that kind of world to like walk in. We also think a lot at Rorschach about how to um, build an audience entrance experience. So it's not just to put people in the right headspace. It's not just you walk in and you have your beer and you're shuffling with your coat. You're talking about your parking experience. You know, we want to be able to really shape your mind and prepare you for the experience. So um, with Neverwhere, we uh, convinced the venue <laughs> to let us use kind of a back access hallway and we created this London alley in this hallway mm. um, and it was a small thing but it was um, we also created a kind of salacious welcome speech that let people know that what was going to happen was going to be exciting and maybe a little bit dangerous and if they wanted to turn back now was the time you know <laughs> so we built this mythology for ourselves around what was going to happen in the space and then they had this short little you know 15 second walk through this um, alley, essentially, which we created in this space that, you know, is not where people are used to going into the theater. And then by the time they came in, I think audiences were just ready and excited and, um, you know, the skill to the sentiment, the patient for was about to happen. And then mm. what we turned out on stage, I think, was quality too. But, but the setup of that, um, I think, meant a lot to a lot of people and really um, made a, a very special and memorable experience. Mm. Well, I mean, I, uh, it, yeah. that sounds fantastic. I wish I had I had seen that particular production. What um, I mean, so have, has every venue been um, that accommodating? <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, there's a yes, no, not always, but um, we have had a lot of really uh, kind and supportive and understanding people who either have blessed us or have look the other way right. um, to things we were doing. Um, right. One of our early productions was um, uh, Ionesco's Rhinoceros that we did oh. in conjunction with Artomatic. And we uh, were in what was the greenhouse of the old Heckinger building in Tenley Town. I think it's now the container store if you were in Tenley Town, but it used to be a Heckinger, which is a hardware store. Oh, yeah. And on the roof of that was a greenhouse. And so we transformed that into uh, a theater. And I think that was one of our, our second or third productions that we did up there. Um, and just again, a sense of like how you can shape the space into something that uh, tells the story and, and accommodates the space and isn't just a traditional theater. Um, wow. Also at Atlas, which is where we did Neverwhere, uh, another project that feels very Rorschach to me is uh, a show we did called uh, Truth and Beauty Bombs, A Softer World, which was based on uh, this wild Canadian webcomic uh, comic series. Um, that you can still find. They don't produce it anymore, but you can still see their whole archive online. Uh, and it had a very weird sort of like dark but funny sense of humor and sense of humanity. And I just loved it. And so we wrote to the people who created it and said, hey, can we use your work to inspire a play? And they said, what? <laughs> I think wow. they were confused at first. So, but, so whose um, idea is it? To, very, so with the source material, like you've, you've mentioned some really interesting, I mean, okay, Master and Margarita, pretty traditional, much more traditional, although like you said, it's a play that a lot of people don't want to tackle or touch or the novel, novel you know, the play version of the novel. But Neverwhere yeah. and now this other piece you're talking about coming from comics, who's, where's that coming from? Is that you and Randy? Who, who sort of is the one that loves the comics and, and wants to really go to, to, you know, I guess they're called visual novels or what Neil Gaiman does isn't called comics, right? So who, where does right. that come from? Who is, who's the one that really loves that stuff? Is it both of you, each of you differently? <laughs> You know, it's a variety, really. Like, Randy and I actually have, when it comes to, um, I think, literature and even some pop culture things, we have sort of divergent tastes. And in a way, it's the, it's the sweet spot in the Venn diagram where Randy and I both find something 
that really sparked an interest that mm. we know is kind of that's that's the sweet spot for what Rorschach is, you know. Um, we also have a wonderful team of company members that are actors and designers and uh, directors and stage managers, um, and they often come to us with ideas, and um, I actually don't even remember. I feel like one of them might have come to us. It's never where we're first, but I don't remember who. Um, so we have people bring us ideas. We also have a program now called Magic in Rough Spaces, where we solicit scripts that are, we're very clear about kind of what the Rorschach vibe is, and we solicit scripts from writers across the country, and then we work and develop those. So we've done um, just quite a few inroads, really, to how we find mm. material. Wow. I mean, I'm just curious because the, the, the source material seems to be so unique, so interesting. And even when it is a, a material that's familiar, a play or something that's already, you know, on the stage before and had other productions, you guys put such an original spin on it. And as you said, it develops its own sort of Rorschach brand, which people know. And then, of course, like you said, that probably germinates even more ideas and people come to you with stuff. So let's talk a bit. Let's take a step back here because everything we've just talked about from the beginning of the podcast, for anyone listening, I'm sure they're already desperate to find out more about Rorschach because it's super interesting if they don't know about Rorschach already. But this has to come from somewhere. So I want to know, Jenny McConnell, Frederick, in your mind, where did this come from? Like, did, did you, how did you get your start in theater? Was this something that you, let's hark back a bit, let's go back in time a bit. How did you, was this something you always wanted to do? Were you in high school saying, I'm going to be an artistic director, a really edgy, cool theater in DC? Or did you have a mentor or someone in theater or helped along the way? Like, how did, how did you get to where you are now you know, in a brief synopsis, how yeah. did you, do, where did you, where did you start with this journey? Sure. So when I was very, very little, when I was in, you know, kindergarten or something, uh, I wanted to be a ballerina. So I took dance classes, uh, took quite a lot of dance classes. And through that, I ended up in a competitive dance troupe. And through that, I ended up doing solo numbers. And they realized that I was an okay dancer, but I was really good at making great faces. Um, and I was not a good singer, so I couldn't do the song and dance numbers. But I was really good at what they then called pantomime numbers, but we would call lip syncing, right? Uh -huh. um, so I had a um, brief but mighty career uh, doing competitive dance competitions all over the East Coast um, to do I there was a duet I did anything you can do I can do better mm -hmm. uh I did Brenda Lee's Sweet Nothings I did Camp Granada so a lot of very theatrical kind of things um from there uh it sort of led naturally to theater I took a couple of acting classes um I think in like late elementary school junior high um and it started in drama class in junior high and school and just loved it from the jump was very interested in acting um but I did do some directing in high school um I directed a one act of um Thornton Wilder's Pullman Car Hiawatha, which I mentioned just because when I look back on it now, it's a very Rorschach play. Mm. Rorschach could easily have produced it. Um, it's, a, it's about these people on a train, and um, the whole kind of solar system comes alive to tell the time and the moment of the day on the train, and the, the field speaks, and the stars and the moon speak, and it just, it's very much something that has a Rorschach vibe, but little did I know back in high school, that's what I was doing. <laughs> um, what to college at VCU to study acting, but really just realized there that I was so much more interested in what everyone else was doing on stage than what I was doing. Mm -hmm. So um, it really was clear that directing is where I wanted to go. Um, ended up back in DC, uh, graduated from college a year early, so I sort of was like, didn't have a plan in here yet. Um, and mm -hmm. literally just sat down and made a bunch of phone calls to theaters about kind of, could I come in and work for you? Could I volunteer? Do you need interns? because there was a phone book back then, so I literally opened the phone book and called there. Hmm. Um, and yeah, that's how I sort of made my first connection to the community. But yeah, I was interested in theater and performance from a very early age. Yeah, I mean, I was going to ask you about, I know you got your, your BFA at Theater VCU in Richmond, because that's where we know each other from. But how did you feel that that program... Yeah. Yeah, oh, go, go Rams. How did you feel that that um, program prepared you um, for the life in theater? Do, do, was it... So that program was a little non-traditional in some ways, but what was, was, what was it about the program? Did you feel like you got enough opportunities to direct? Although a lot of programs, undergrads never get a lot of opportunities but did you have to carve out your own like did it prepare you for when you were in dc and trying to find your way yeah so i mean i would say it was exactly what i wanted when i was graduating from high school and looking for a program it was you know a theater conservatory program where i could focus on acting 
Um, and that was what I wanted at the end of high school. I think by the end of college, I kind of wanted something different. Sure. And maybe if I'd even stayed in, I mean, I, I graduated after three years, but if I had decided to take that fourth year, you know, I think I would have taken more directing classes. I did a little bit of directing, but it was mostly opportunities that I carved out myself there. So certainly I think there was a good focus from VCU on what it would mean to be a professional. I think, you know, we certainly had the um, conversation drilled in that I heard in so many different ways growing up that like, if there's anything else you want to do, you should do it, right? Because right. theater is hard and yeah. making a living and making a life in theater mm. um, is a challenge. And if you can find other ways or other things that, that spark you, you should do that, mm. uh, which always seemed like such weird advice to me as a kid. But mm. um, as an adult, I get it. I get why people say that. And I say that to other people sometimes now mm. too. But so I think, I think it was an honest education, right? Like I think it, it told me the things that I would need to know to go forward for sure. Mm. Yeah. Well, and I've always thought this about you. You're very quick. You're very um, fast on your feet. Uh, you're mentally very acute. And, you know, I, I read somewhere, you won't probably say this, but I'll say it, that you are a member of Mensa. So uh, I was like, oh, that makes sense. I was very briefly. <laughs> Good for you. No, but what I'm saying is even as a young person, I mean, you finished school early, you completed your degree early, you know, so you were ready for sort of the adult life of going out there and, and, and being, you know, um, a full adult working in the artistic community. So you get to DC and you're picking up the phone book and you're making a ton of calls and you're making connections and meeting people. And so how from there did you, like, were, was there sort of an interim where you worked with other directors, where you worked at theaters, or or did you go right into Rorschach? Yeah, um, a little bit of both. There were kind of parallel tracks. So I started out at um, when Source Theater Company was still around and they had a Washington Theater Festival. That was my very first gig moments after I graduated um, was an unpaid internship there where I was doing literally a little bit of everything some stage management but also directing 10 minute plays um, and it was just it was again talking about a culture of yes you could walk in the room and they would be like oh you're 17 or like I was 20 like what can you do do this right um, and so they would throw opportunity at you and that was a great start to meet some people in the community um, from there uh, Brett Goldstein who had been who's a casting director in New York now but um was a source at the time, and she said, you know, your vibe and your energy, you should really get to know what Woolly Mammoth Theater Company is doing. So um, I went over there and got a job as a production intern um, for a while, and then uh, ended up being their resident assistant stage manager for a year, um, which was a really excellent job. Because one of the things that happens when you come to town and you try to do these things is you're trying to piece together gigs here and there. There just aren't that many year-round kind of commitments where you're in the same place for an extended period of time. Um, and sure. to be able to be at Woolly for that year, and it was not a full-time job, I was still waiting tables and working a part-time job at Theater J and doing a bunch of other stuff. Sure. But to have that consistency of a year in a space where you get to know um, the staff of the theater company, you get to know the key production people, and as the assistant stage manager, I was in the room for every rehearsal. So hmm. while I was not assistant directing, I got quite a lot of the same experience. I got to watch how different directors worked. I got to understand the dynamics between directors and designers in a real world kind of context. Mm -hmm. um, and I met people in that year that really have influenced every step of the way since then. Um, mm -hmm. And it was right about that time during the year I was doing that that we founded Rorschach and that, that existed concurrently with my day job career, which was also in theater. But um, so, yeah, so, so, yeah, so you're, you're in this crucible, right? You're in Woolly Mammoth for a year. And you're absorbing all sort of how that works, how that production works, and how that theater company works must have helped you for when you had to put Rorschach together. You had some basic ideas, right, of how to run a theater at that point, which you probably didn't know much of prior to that, right? I mean, you had some instincts, but... Right, right. So um, I was also working part-time at Theater J, which was a real small operation at that oh. point. And um, so getting some insight on how they operated, uh, I briefly went back and was production manager at Source Theater Company. Mm. And then while I was still working in production at Woolly, they hired me to work in the admin office uh, in the development department. So fundraising, right? Which is mm. something I literally, I think when they said, we have an opening in development. I said, what is development? That that, that I was not prepared for in college. <laughs> yes, <laughs> the fundraising no. component and what that meant. Mm -hmm. um, so it was an easy decision to give up my waiting tables career and sure. to uh, work in admin at Woolly. And I spent about 10 years there uh, going from um, development and then into special events for them. And 
um, I just say it was like a decade-long master's program in the small theater. I was there through um, the capital campaign that moved them from the tiny Church Street space down to where they are now on T Street. Mm-hmm. And um, just to see the staff grow and evolve, to see what um, how a company goes from being tiny and scrappy to being an institution and having a building. And, and it's just a different world. And I feel like I was there at this really fascinating time. Um, so yeah. it was uh, an extra experience so let me let me see if I get this right so that's fascinating in terms of getting that into your you know your your bag of tricks you're getting all that information as well and you're learning all that experience you know collating here and there these different pieces of experience which is fascinating but it sounds like at the same time you were also or at some time in there working at you mentioned DC Source Festival where you worked eventually for a decade working on the DC Source Festival. What was that experience like? And what, you know, I know that you were responsible for, you know, working for them for overseeing selection, development, production of more than 200 works for the stage. So what was it, what did you, what did you learn there to add to your arsenal of skills? Yeah, so for, I worked for William Mammoth for about 10 years. I was basically in my 20s. And then in my 30s, I was hired by Cultural DC, mm. who um, had taken over and owned the Source Building, now Source Theater Company, had disbanded, but the building was still there and was being used for theater. And, and Cultural DC um, had revived this idea of a summer festival. And um, some other people uh, ran it for the first two years, and then I took it over in the third year. And um, it was an amazing opportunity to create inroads and to kind of pay forward the gifts that I had had mm-hmm. as a theater artist when I came to the town, came to town, and had people give me opportunities. And and I loved being in the position to be able to do that. We produced three full length plays and um, eighteen ten minute plays each summer, and then three artistic blind dates where we brought brought together artists of different disciplines mm-hmm. uh, to create short performance pieces. Um, and I did that, yeah, for about ten years. And um, it was amazing to be in the room to make the art, but just to bring people together. You know, we looked at playwrights from across the country. We would bring them to town to workshop. We would do open calls. Um, The actors were always open calls. Um, That's another thing that I instituted was, I also instituted paychecks, because when I started there, people were being paid. (laughs) They were eventually paid. Um, So they weren't huge paychecks, but it is a, big sort of difference um so uh one of the things that i did there was to create an open call process for every facet right so you could submit scripts without having to know somebody without needing an agent Mm -hmm. you could apply as a director we had an online application to be a director which is just like not a thing right like you have to assistant direct yourself to death usually (laughs) to get a job directing or you Mm self-produce um and so to create kind of some of these pathways for artists to get to know each other and to connect and to put down boots in dc i think is really at the heart of what that work was for those 10 years Mm -hmm. um Wow. So yeah, and it, the festival is no longer around, but it um, right. was a remarkable time and uh, just allowed me to meet and connect such a huge array of people. No, it sounds like that's really another piece of the puzzle of what helped you, you know, as you were putting together Rorschach and developing. So let's talk a bit. So now that you're, you're, assist, you know, you're artistic director with Randy of Rorschach Theater, you've got the experience of working on this for, you know, two decades now. So now you probably have a good idea of, of to answer this question, which is how do you like to collaborate with other creatives to create the show? What means a good collaborative experience for you and, and what do you need, want from your creative collaborators. So what's something that you, you look for? Yeah. Um, certainly that culture of yes, right? Um, to sit down at the table and have people who are willing to dream big from the beginning and to think about what, is, what seems impossible and how to make it possible. That's the first thing that I want to have in any collaborator. Mm-hmm. Um, I want someone who comes to the table with their own ideas and their own vision, but that are willing to melt that and to listen and to work with other people. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's really important to uh, have vision, to have their own vision, but also to be able to collaborate, I think. But the, the sense of starting out with a yes and then figuring out what the parameters are and if we need to narrow something down or shift it or change it, mm-hmm. um, that's fine. But uh, I'm always frustrated to be at a table with someone who says, well, that's not possible, we can't do this, and this is difficult. And those are people that um, won't work 
for Rorschach for very long. <laughs> right. Well, I think it's always easier to figure out what it is you don't want, right? Because that's that's easier to identify, right? Yeah. The no people. Well, and especially you coming from the background that you have, where you haven't said no, you've said yes the whole time, and you know, pr- created these productions in these places that <laughs> you know were no was screaming you in the face, and you were like, no, let's do it anyway. So, I mean, yeah, that's the spirit of Rorschach. I, I get the you know the can do spirit, and that's a good collaborative experience, I think. So, um. Talk to me a bit about, since I, I want to talk a bit now, pi, you know, pivot, as you said earlier, uh, everyone's saying now, I'm going to pivot. <laughs> yeah. Let me pivot to, to right now. We've just gone through a, a crazy year in theater. And since I've got you on the phone and you are one of the foremost, I think, creative artistic directors in town, um, and you've had to navigate with this, you know, um, crazy last year that we've had, um, what is your view for the state of DC theater? And this is a big question. You may not have, I, I'm not expecting you to have all the answers, but just your view. Um, where DC is going to go from here? We know where DC was prior to the pandemic, or we had some sort of an idea. Where do you think the we're, DC theater community, how we're going to pick up, or what would you like to see? You know, you can't predict, but what would you like to see going forward? Yeah. Um, I think I, I think I will frame this in terms of a hope, and I hope that um, DC takes this as an opportunity to grow and evolve and to be able to break out of some of the rigidity that I think a lot of people feel. Um, working in theater and trying to make a career in theater, whether it's your full-time gig or you're a contract worker, it's mm. always a hustle and it's endless and it never stops. Um, there are no breaks, right? Like, unless yeah. you self-impose them and then you have all of those kind of doubts about whether the community will embrace you again if you quit and if you stop it, you know. Yeah. And is, there's just this relentlessness to it. And having this forced break, which none of us wanted to happen, though, um, I think and I hope has given people an opportunity to kind of um, look at other parts of their life and to uh, maybe just see that it is possible to go forward with less relentlessness. Um, and that's, I guess, based on an individual basis. Um, I think for companies, I think, I hope that they are continuing to, I hope that this year they have found and will continue to find going forward the space and time to be self-reflective and contemplative. I think um, a lot of artists this year rightfully spoke up about inequities in our community, the way that uh, a lot of companies deal with race. Um, and I think a lot of companies have rightly been forced to really confront some difficult things Mm -hmm. and to think about how they can evolve and to really do the work to evolve. Uh, There's been a lot of theater Washington's been a lot of good things to bring people together to uh, YPT's Arrow program has been um, a big help working together with uh, theater leaders to think better to remove racism from the workplace. Um, Mm. So there's all these things that people have been able to dig into and take time for. And um, I hope that those things really blossom into a kind of more free and liberated community where you can feel free to make a change from the schedule that you've had planned for months, you know, and you can really kind of um, be free to examine things in a different way. Yeah, I mean, I'm curious about this question. Obviously, that's why I asked it, because when I talk to theater artists around the country, and particularly those in New York City versus those on the West Coast, there's a different vibe going on there. But in the East Coast, in New York City, um, a lot of the artists I talk to uh, for this podcast, I, I'm getting the feeling that they're searching for a way to work with the unions. Uh, they're searching for a more humane, thoughtful yeah. way to work with companies and the you know in the for-profit world. But in the non-for-profit world, you know, aside from this reckoning around um, racism, around um, you know unheard voices, and you know trying to find give people who haven't had a chance at the table to be at the table, which is wonderful. Aside from that, though, in terms of like the way we work, not a lot of people are talking about that. And I think what you said earlier in this interview about instituting paychecks, even if they weren't large paychecks, no one's going to become a millionaire. <laughs> but paycheck having having a paycheck for your artistic work it means something. To people and being able to take home something, whether it's fifty bucks, a hundred bucks, or a thousand bucks, doesn't really matter. It's the dignity of work, right? And the being able to have time to be thoughtful and right. to be with your family and not to have to run thirty gigs at the same time and hustle all the time. Yeah, for sure. There's still a lot of you know a lot of things that need to be improved about really small theater companies. And you know when you exist in this world where most of your artists 
still have some other kind of income, some other kind of day job, um, it's, it's always a struggle to prioritize it properly, to compensate properly. All of it is, is a struggle, and I hope that we keep looking for those solutions that companies are able to kind of scale what they're doing to what their resources are and make it a more livable world for everybody, you know? Absolutely. And I think that you're one of the people that I'm going to be looking at, Jenny, <laughs> no pressure, uh, to lead us forward into this new into this new area because of your position and where you are in terms of the, the smaller, more, you know, really where a lot of the more organic, the more um, groundbreaking work is, is happening in those kind of theaters like, like Rorschach. So that's, that's kind of why I'm thinking because the bigger theaters are, are saddled with a lot of other things and board of directors and, and you know, uh, budgets that sometimes actually uh, curtail their sure. creativity, you know. So anyway, so let's talk a bit about now and the yeah. future. And let's talk a bit about right now, like July 2021 coming up, um, which I think I got the right <laughs> date, um, which is Distance Frequency. This is, this is a project that you guys are working on at Rorschach, which is intriguing to me. And I want to know more about it. So tell us more about Distance Frequencies. What is it? And how eventually can people participate or get tickets? For sure. So um, we've been calling it an unprecedented experience for unprecedented times. Mm. Uh, it began, I think, last summer as um, Randy and I talked about what the pandemic meant for theater. Where was Rorschach's space in the world? What did what did the world what did Rorschach have that we could give to the world right now? that was different than what we've done before because we can't bring actors out. We can't bring people together with the actors. Um, and so we thought a lot about how we surround audiences with the world of the play and what that means to really immerse the audiences. And um, we came up with this vision for a project that would allow kind of the whole city to become our stage. Mm. So um, when people subscribe to Distance Frequencies, they receive a seven-chapter story in the mail. When we began back in October, you would get one a month. Now, if you subscribe today, you'll get them all seven at once. Mm. Um, and each chapter uh, comes with instructions to travel to a different location in the Washington area, uh, all actually in the inside D.C. proper. Um, and then inside your box are artifacts, handcrafted artifacts, that tell a chapter of a story. And the story is part magic realism, part uh, historical fiction based on um, real things that happened here in DC. Um, and so there's seven chapters, seven locations all across the city. Some of them feel very urban, some of them feel very pastoral. Um, we begin the first one in Rock Creek Church uh, Cemetery, which is just this beautiful cemetery in Upper Northwest that is, um, so many people have just said that they've never been there before and they had no idea what it would be like. Um, so is these seven we, chapters wait a minute. Is, Rock uh, Creek, now, is Rock Creek the cemetery that used to be where they buried um, all the military people before Arlington? Or is that another one? I don't remember. It's up by... That's a, well, there's a, there's a cemetery across the street from that, and I think that, yes. But yeah, it's, it's near I think it's that. Part of it, we're kind of the, we deal with the other side of it. Sure. Great. Sorry. I just wanted to, to put it in a location yeah. for myself. Okay. So, yeah. Sorry. I didn't mean to, to interrupt your flow. So, go ahead. So, that's one of the locations. Yeah. No. So, the... Um, Right, so the final chapter of the story, though, will be a live performance this July. Mm -hmm. um, I cannot yet reveal the location, but very Ooh. soon. Okay. Um, so it will be um, a live, in-person, outdoor performance that kind of wraps up the story. Um, there'll be enough, uh, you know, uh, insight given so that if you have not followed all the seven chapters previously, you'll still be able to know what's going on. You can still enjoy it. So okay. uh, next Wednesday, we're going to be releasing tickets mm. uh, so people can buy... Um, individual tickets for the show or you can still subscribe to the entire experience so if you buy all seven chapters it comes with one ticket for the live show um it's a phenomenally good deal um and uh it has just been the response to this project has been phenomenal people have told us that they have seen it in the pandemic as their kind of self-care uh as a way to connect with friends and other people they couldn't see otherwise because they could mm -hmm. go out in the world and do this um outdoor in their own time frame, um, choose to be near people or not near people. Uh, it also became wildly more popular than we expected. We evolved, we thought maybe we'll have like 50 people who want to do this in the pandemic. And we are now over 400 subscribers um, wow. and more coming each week. And what is interesting about that is that people go out to these sites to, to experience their chapter and they can like look across the way and see somebody else doing the same thing and they can, there's this very distinctive green paper in the boxes and so people recognize each other you know and whether they actually come together and connect 
there's this sense of, of energy of other people out in the world. And I think um, particularly earlier in the pandemic where there was just so much space between us, you know, and to be able to be and share in the same space and be connected with other people in the same moment doing the same thing, but also with all these layers of DC history. Oh, it's just really touched an important note for people, I think. Mm-hmm. So let me just clear, let me just clarify something on the logistics so that I understand. Like, so if I want to participate in this, there are seven chapters, and they're going to culminate in the live performance um, in July. Um, the tickets that are going on sale on Wednesday, the nineteenth of May, right? Um, those are tickets for the live performance, right? Okay, but if I'm interested in any of the seven chapters, while I'm listening to you could do that right now, right? So right. there's, um, you know, in a household, say, they may have bought one subscription for their household, but then they'll want additional tickets to come to the final performance. So uh, the single tickets, essentially, are going on sale. Um, you can buy the boxes anytime. The other thing that's worth knowing, since I know you have a, a beyond DC reach for your podcast, mm-hmm. is that um, you can do these from your home. Um, we have video walking tours for each location. Um, and yes. you can sit in the comfort of your own home and watch a video that shows what the experience is like to go to the space. You'll still get the box with all the artifacts in it. Um, and there will be a recorded version of the summer performance that you can experience as well. Um, so far, we have uh, 18 states and three countries rep- represented among our subscribers. So people are all over the place. Well, absolutely. Doing it's, it's totally um, global now. And also, wouldn't this be a great teaching tool? for a college or a university Absolutely. or a high school theater uh, teacher to be able to, to, to purchase one of these if they can or, or have the students chip in and purchase a, 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 this experience for the class. Absolutely, and we're doing a lot of thinking and talking about kind of what comes next and what is the future of this project. Um, people, uh, you know, just the response over and over from people has been like, you've shown me my city in a different way. I've seen things I've never seen. I've lived here for 30 years and I've never been to some of these places. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just gives people a curated experience outside their home to connect with where they already are and what their city is. And um, it's just uh, really been very meaningful to people is, is the response that we're getting. So if someone wants to get tickets, do they just search for distance frequencies or do they go to Rorschach? How, what's the website? How do they get tickets? Yes, you could do any of those things. Um, okay. But probably the most efficient is to go to RorschachTheater.com. You want to just Google the correct spelling of that, but um, <laughs> it's R-O-R-S-C-H-A-C-H. Mm-hmm. And theater with an R-E. So com will take you there. Um, and you can read about, see about all our other programming, but also Distance Frequencies is very prominent on that page. Um, you can follow us on Instagram at RorschachDC, and we're on Facebook as well as Rorschach Theater. Um, and any of those are great ways to connect. Um, yeah, and we would love to, to grow the family. It's been a really cool community. Absolutely. And all the wonderful things that Rorschach Theater is doing in DC and will continue to do moving forward. Um, do you expect there to be a um, online component to what Rorschach does moving forward, or is it something you're going to see and how that goes? You know, once theaters start opening up, um, hopefully soon, and yeah. um, people can be in person. Or do you like? Uh, it seems like you guys would like this sort of on and off kind of with you know this this global approach or this this countrywide approach in terms of digital. What are you thinking? Yeah, um, it's been really exciting to connect to people from different locations, and I think um, there will definitely be some elements of that that we keep. Um, mm-hmm. Certainly allowing distance frequencies or whatever the next version of this project is um, to be something that can be experienced if you're not in D.C., uh, something we would go forward with. Um, we have found that uh, in terms of workshopping and developing new plays, which is another program that we have, we have been able to connect with a wider variety of artists and mm cast things um, kind of more efficiently and uh, by being able to use people from across the country. So there are certain components of our work that I think might um, remain digital. I think our primary work will always um, be live and be in the world because it is such a unique medium. And, um, you know, the people in Hollywood are doing a wonderful job making films. So <laughs> I don't think that we're <laughs> going right. to translate to right. a... Yes, know your lane. And, <laughs> right. but at so the I don't same think we're going to translate to a full-on... No. 
Yeah, yeah. It's so you know yeah. your lane, and you know that the that the digital can be a complement if needed, or on occasion you might have a digital pass or something if that's something that you guys decide to do. But remains to be seen, and we'll see. But um, we're all, we're out of time, which is crazy. I just looked at my my watch, and we just completely have covered you know <laughs> it, so quickly, um, Jenny. It's so great to talk to you. But um, I want to just you know in the in the interest of time, just wrap up and say you know we're really excited here in DC with the work that you guys have been doing at Rorschach Theater. We're excited to, about distance frequencies. Again, those who want to get tickets, it's uh, they can go to rorschachtheater.com. You can just look on our uh, little bio page area of the podcast to see how to spell it, R-O-R-S-C-H-A-C-H, uh, and or just Google Rorschach Theater or distance frequencies, and you should be able to get to that information. Uh, single tickets go on sale May 19th for the live event in July. Uh, location, surprise location, remains to be seen, but um, will be announced soon. I coming hope. soon, yeah. That will soon. also be revealed on Wednesday, we expect. Exciting. So there's a lot of exciting stuff yeah. going on, and this will all be on uh, social media as well, I'm sure, and on the Rorschach website. So, Jenny, if people want to keep updated with what you're working on, specifically even beyond Rorschach, do you have a social media account you like to have people follow or a website, or is there anything on you particularly that, that people can, if they want to know more about you, can go to? Yeah, sure. You can visit my website. I am at JennyMcConnellFrederick.com, and that uh, is a kind of comprehensive look at quite a lot of things that I've done. Um, my only public social media account is my Twitter account, so that's jmcfred, J-M-C-F-R-E-D. I'm not there too often. I'm not tweeting too often, but I, if you message me there, I'll certainly find you. Um, my Instagram and my Facebook tend to be mostly dedicated to my son, uh, who is lovely. But, <laughs> he is but, um, wonderful. In my professional life. <laughs> yeah. No, of course. Um, Twitter or my website is probably the best. Awesome. And that's where people yeah. can go if they want to find out more, if this interview has sparked their interest to talk to you more or, you know, just find out more about you. Jenny, thank you so much for spending um, your time with American Theater Artists Online. We're really glad that we had you here on our podcast. Thank you so much for doing this. I'm really glad that you're out sharing all these stories of the world. It's wonderful. So we try you. and we'll, we'll, you know, we'll be continuing to follow Rorschach and see all the wonderful things that you guys are doing moving forward. Fantastic. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the American Theater Artists Online podcast. This episode was edited by Zach Walsh. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider donating to the Actors Fund today. Just go to actorsfund.org and press donate. If you'd like to share your feedback or send us comments, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at American Theatre Artists Online.